And another angel came and stood at the altar with gold and censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees uh, were burned up, and all the grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain made burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. When I looked, and I heard, and then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell in the earth. At the, uh, the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Well, as I've been saying through uh, the book of Revelation, um, we sometimes are taught by those who often preach a lot about end times that we are to see all the events in the book of Revelation as forming a kind of a one line. That all these events are happening consecutively, one after another. So you have the seals, you have these trumpets, and then you have later on these bowls. And so at one point in history, you have the, the, the seals that are broken and all the events that go over that. And then sometime later on in history, you have trumpets that are sounded, and then after that, you have bowls that are poured out. And so they see uh, um, Revelation as a long history, historic timeline. And yet, others, and I think rightly so, have seen the book of Revelation as a cycle, as a cycle of events, telling the same events from different perspectives. So rather than seeing one long line beginning from beginning to end, what you're seeing is a circle coming this way, looping, and then the same looping again, a cycle, cycles of events throughout the book of Revelation, telling the history of the church between Jesus' first and second coming in three different ways. And others might have a better way of explaining it, but I've often seen it in terms of uh, the uh, an event might happen 
outside or in the world, and news agencies from all over the world will converge and tell that event from a particular nation's perspective. So the CBC went over, they would say, how many Canadians were you know, in that earthquake? The Brits might say, what does this mean for Britain in terms of their oil or energy supply? Uh, the United States might say, what is going to be President Biden's response? Uh, you're looking at the same event, but you're looking at it from different perspectives. And you're looking at it using different lenses and imagery to enrich, to enrich and to drive home what the, the Apostle John is trying to communicate. So we might say that to children. We might, if they're going to do something that's important or uh, maybe dangerous, you might say, now tell me again what you're going to do when you get there. Well, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. And then five minutes later, okay, when you get there and you've done this, then what are you going to do? Well, and so you, you're reinforcing something because you know it's important. And we've already seen a cycle take place, and that was the seals, the seven seals that were open. We're going to see the last one here. The seven seals, I and mean, what did we see in those seven seals? Well, things like the uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse coming out with war and famine and dictatorships and all of these things, all things that have characterized human history. Especially from the time Jesus came to the present time. We lived through it. We've grown up in it. It's really a commentary on the world as we live in it. And now we are looking at trumpets. And the trumpets are, again, unleashing things that have already happened with things like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But again, emphasizing. And, and uh, uh, really driving it home. And so we're coming into another of those cycles. The seals, and now the trumpets. And so it begins in chapter 8 and with these words. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Very unusual opening. Especially after the after chapter seven, which was so jubilant, wasn't it? You have the redeemed. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And the angels were standing around saying, Oh man, blessing, glory, and wisdom of thanksgiving and honor, uh, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. This is what heaven is uh, in uproar over. The praise of the Lamb, the singing of praises to God. But now, when the Lamb had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven. I want you to kind of understand that because it, it, it speaks of something very solemn that is going to come in chapter 8. It's like the calm before the storm. That's the idea that he's trying to communicate here with this silence in heaven. He really wants us to compare it to the jubilant atmosphere that was just there in the former chapter, to the silence, the 
overwhelming sense of awe that has now overtaken the occupants of heaven toward what God is about to do upon the earth. It's a, as one commentator says, it is a silence that has content. You'll remember this song from Simon and Garfunkel, The Sounds of Silence. In other words, there is silence can have a sound. If you're giving someone the silent treatment, that can have a sound too. And it sometimes speaks volumes. And silence here has a content. And that's what Paul Simon was saying in his song back in the 60s, that the silence, man's inability to communicate with man, has a voice. It has a sound. And one, that this is what this commentator is saying, that the silence has a content. That silence is spoken of in the Old Testament as, as a call to be reverent before the God of all the earth. Let all mortal flesh keep silent. That's the idea. Job says, I will not speak anymore. I will put my hand over my mouth. And I will not spout out my foolishness any longer. But I will be silent before God. It's that idea, and it's a preparation for the judgment that is coming. It's a kind of an eerie silence, as one feels before a tornado might strike. There's a hush. The birds aren't seen. The birds aren't moving. All nature seems to know that there's this storm that is going to descend. And so, um, there is this fearful dread that has fallen upon the uh, occupants of heaven itself. From jubilation to a sense of amazement and wonder. And another angel, verse 3, uh, came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God uh, from uh, the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Please be reminded that what he is seeing is visionary. He is seeing things in a vision, but describing things that will happen in history. And he is describing here the prayers of the saints going up before God. Remember they were praying back in chapter 6. Uh, he says there, they, they cried out with a loud voice, verse 10, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood of those who dwell on the earth? You see, this, these are now the prayers that God is responding to. And out of those prayers comes the judgments that fall upon you. Now we've seen this through the Bible, right from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden. As the man and the woman were expelled for disobeying God, they were cast out of the garden. There's the judgment. 
The flood was another judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah was another judgment. The 400 years of the, of the book of Judges, where Israel would commit idolatry, and God would send a foreign nation to defeat them. And then they would cry out to God, and God would save them back and forth, back and forth. And then, in the 6th century B.C., the Babylonians came in on Jerusalem after hundreds of years of disobeying God. The Israelites were carried away captive to Babylon. When Jesus was born, who then lived and died and was crucified, judgment came upon uh, uh, the Jews within a generation when in 70 A.D., the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. So we are familiar with those judgments that fall upon uh, the people of the Bible. Not only the nations, not only those who are pagan, but also those who are God's own people. I will judge my people, says the Lord. <clears throat> and now out of this, out of the prayers of the saints, the kingdom of God is coming. We learn that prayer from the time we are small. What do we say? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy be thy name. God is holy, and God is, this is the, the thing that God cannot deny. He cannot deny his own holiness. We would be the same, wouldn't we? If you come into this church and all sorts of unspeakable evil was taking place, of destruction and abuse and all sorts of things, there would be a holy revulsion inside of us. Our conscience would be the better of say, this must stop. Someone must pay. It's just instinctive, isn't it? It's instinctive within us to want that. How much more is that true of God? When we read a chapter like this, we might think, this is a lot to take in. This is a lot of violence and destruction and blood and, 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 and so on. And yet, what we've seen through all these judgments throughout the Bible is that same thing that we want for ourselves, we cannot deny in God. And in response to that prayer, thy, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, now the angel is taken from the censer. The fire through which the prayers of the saints rose before God, and he's effectively saying, effectively saying, I am now answering your prayers by casting fire upon the earth. Our prayers, when we pray, you see, when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's not just some little childish prayer that we pray, that we learn, and that we attach some sentimental value to. We are praying something so awesome, so amazing. Thy kingdom come, God. It, it, it's, it's heavy to pray for the coming of God's kingdom. We are to pray that for ourselves, for our own heart. God, that your kingdom would come in my heart. That Jesus might be ruler of my heart and ruler of my life, but in the way, but especially so in the nations, in the world. 
And whether we like it or not, this is how God is bringing about the answers to those prayers. Yeah. It's, so this chapter is prefaced. It starts off by saying, in effect, God saying, I am answering the prayers of my people. Here are the trumpets, and here are all the things that are going to happen because of these trumpets. Because I'm answering your prayers. Because now fire is cast upon the earth in response to what you have said, in response to your pleas for justice, for uh, 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 judgment and all of these things. It's, it's an awesome thing. But nevertheless, here it is. Jesus teaches us to pray because God chooses to work through our prayers. And when we go to the Psalms, Oh God, arise and let your enemies be scattered. May those who hate you flee before you. We're using the Psalms as a means of saying, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. When we see a world in rebellion against God, so that the very good gifts of God that He has created in this world are now twisted and thrown back in God's face as God is mocked. As people say, black is white and white is black, up is down. All of these things. And do we then expect the God who has given all of these good gifts, who sees them trampled underfoot, especially the gift of his only son, who died on a cross, do we expect this God to simply brush it under the rug and say, or he doesn't have it? No. Even in a personal way this morning, we cannot. Put God off because it's easy, as I've said before, to point to the world again. So, oh, that would be bad world. What about you this morning? What about your own heart? You don't need to point out there. You have to say, what about me? Am I trampling the good gifts of God underfoot? Am I rejecting His Son? Am I bringing these judgments down upon my own head? Because there will be no one more pitiable on the day of judgment than those who have heard and heard and heard and heard. And yet, have done nothing with who have despised the riches of God's goodness. Oh, friends, no. We hear these awesome judgments. We hear of heaven being silent as it awaits the judgment of God upon those who refuse to repent and we have tremble. May it not be you this morning. But this is what God is doing in these first few verses. He's using the prayers of his people. He's responding. He teaches to pray for nothing. He doesn't do it just to keep us occupied. To throw around the religious sentiment in our life. No, he tells us to pray because God is going to work through our prayers. In the events of men, in the salvation of sinners, in the putting food on our tables, to the bringing down of empires, and to the Things that are going on in the world this very day. This is why, one of the reasons why we have, this is the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. Because we're praying. We know that God holds the keys to those prison cells. God is able to bring emperors down. God is able to set the captives free. He did that in the book of Acts. When Peter was asleep and lying there, sound asleep, and the angels within him. Wakes him up, get up, come with me. 
We're going out. That's a picture. Why? Because the church was praying for him. I love the way it says that. But the church was praying for Peter. It's as if to say, what could his enemies do when the church was praying for him? That's why our brothers and sisters in so many parts of the world today, they say, we don't want your money. We don't want your pity. We want your prayers. Please pray for us. Please pray for us. And out of that comes verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. We said from the very beginning that Revelation is Old Testament heavy, right? It's just saturated with Old Testament. He's using things that they already understand. He's giving them a, a leg up already. Say, hey, I know what that means. That, seven trumpets? That sounds exactly like when Joshua and the Israelites defeated and brought down the city of Jericho. They also used uh, trumpets, seven priests with seven trumpets. There also was a time of silence as the people walked around the city and they were to say not a word for all those days. And then on the last day when the trumpet sounded, they were to give a great shout. And when they shouted, the walls came down. And Jesus, through this vision to John, is asking us to, to see it in that light. To see that Joshua chapter 6 is directly connected to the chapter that we are looking at here, but in an infinitely greater way, in a universal way, not just localized in a little place called Jericho, but now expanded universally and time-wise to take in the whole period of history between Jesus' first and second coming, the one in which we now live. The second way in which we think about these judgments is through the lens of the plagues of Egypt. So we have two Old Testament uh, pictures that are now being lived out in our day and generation. You have the plagues on Egypt. What happened to the plagues of Egypt? God sends Moses down to Egypt to set the Israelites free. Moses or rather, Pharaoh refuses. He hardens his heart, just as the people of Jericho. Rather than seeing sense and yielding to it, they build the walls, they <clears throat> close the ranks, they harden their, themselves. It's, it, it's repetitive. Just as many people sit in church and hear the gospel and they close their hearts, they, hard, they, they close ranks, they build the walls, they make the excuses. Not this Sunday, not this Sunday. So with Egypt, God sends these ten plagues. The Nile is turned to blood. The sun is darkened. It comes this night in the middle of the day. Frogs come up on the land. Locusts. Hail destroys the crops. All of these things. Now, each one of those, each one of those uh, 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 plagues was in response to a God that they worshipped in those things. So the God of the sun, they, they worshipped the God of the sun. The God of the Nile, they 
worship the God of the Nile. And it stands to reason because every year the Nile overflowed its banks. And it deposited all sorts of minerals and things that the crops needed to grow on the land. And so we better keep this God satisfied. And so we'll pray to him. And we'll pray to the sun. The sun god. And we'll pray to all these other gods that affect our lives. And God comes along and says, I judge this God, this God, this God, this God. They are not gods. I am God. I am the God of Israel. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the eternal God. I am the great I am. Who was and is and ever will be. And he was... He, he's pouring out his judgments upon these gods. And so as you go through each one of these trumpets, as it were, it has many of the elements of those Egyptian curses. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. A reminder of how the Nile was turned to blood. These were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up with, uh, 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 was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up and all the grass was burned up. In other words, it wasn't a total destruction. At the end of chapter 7, at the end of that cycle, we see, at the end of that cycle, complete cosmic disintegration. But because we're in another cycle here, he's showing the time between Jesus' first and second coming is not a time of complete destruction, but partial destruction. That's why he talks about a third of this and a third of that. In number three, uh, it was number two, the second angel blew his trumpet, something like a great mountain. The mountains in the Bible were pictures of nations and empires burning with fire, were thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. Again, another reminder of Egypt. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died. Again, same happened in the Nile. All the creatures in the Nile died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. Jeremiah, for example, spoke of Babylon as a destroying mountain, which will be burned by fire in Jeremiah 51. And later on in the same chapter, he speaks of Babylon sinking into the waters, never to rise again. Again, very much of what John is describing here. He's talking about empires. He's talking about worlds. He's talking about nations that will rise up. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people imagine anything? They take their stand against the Lord and against his anointing. He who sits in heaven will what? He will laugh. When he sees them going about doing all these things. Because they're just men. They're just nations. And through these trumpets, through the sound of these trumpets, God is bringing judgment upon the nations and bringing judgment upon the things that they enrich themselves with. We'll see that in a moment. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven. Many people think this is that image of of Satan falling from heaven like lightning, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and the springs of water. The name of the star was Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because of it is aged bitter. 
The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that the third of their light might be darkened, a third of the day might be kept uh, from shining, likewise the night. What are we seeing in all of these? Well, again, we need to remember what each one of these trumpets are doing. They're reminding us about the plagues of Egypt, the, also the fall of Jericho, and the gods of Egypt. That God was not only ju judging the Egyptians, but judging the gods of the Egyptians. If you lived in a world where you put so much emphasis on the, the flooding of the Nile and the shining of the sun and all these other things, then these things would become like God's to they become like idols to And in all of this, we can see what the Bible talks about in terms of our own lives, and our own propensity to make idols and gods of the things of this world. And the, how, how great a place the sun is, what, what a great part it plays in our lives, or fresh water, all of, all of these things that he describes here. God is basically saying to the Egyptians, these things will not help you. Your gods are impotent. I am the true and living God. And when it comes to ourselves, we also find that we will substitute things for the living God to give us value and we define ourselves by things that are great, but we should not define ourselves by them because they will they won't. Even our families. I'm a good husband. I'm a good wife. I'm a good son, daughter. I'm a good professional. This is my career. I do it well. People applaud me for it. I find my identity in that. My value rises and falls to something I. My sense of self-worth rises and falls with the sun. It comes and goes with the stars. All in all of these ways. And when I die, again I find my value in myself. And I will stand before God with head lifted high, and I will say to God, have you seen? The great things that I've done, the decent person, I was a churchgoer, this, that, and the other, helped so many people. Here, friends, God takes the, the deaths of the universe, the things that men lean on, the things that men look to to refresh them and feed them and enlighten them, and he says, I have blacked them out. I have made them vain and of no effect. I have brought judgment upon them. They will not save you. That's why the centerpiece of the former chapter was the lamb in the midst of the throne. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. You see, these trumpets that are sounding give uh, a, 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 a picture of the way in which God pulls the rug out from people 
He, came, he shows that the things that they put their security and their heart and their identity in are of no value whatsoever. And neither can we. That's not to say that we should not value family or careers. I'm not saying any of that. But our value as human beings comes right from the book of Genesis. God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he made the male and female made he them. That's where we find who we are. That's where we find our value. Not in our accomplishments. Not in the things of this world. Not in the stars or the moon or the water or the land or the sea or the earth and all its riches. But we are silent before the God of all the earth. In you are that salvation. In you I have purpose. I've been made not for my husband or wife or my boyfriend or my job or my career or whatever it is. Look, if I'm looking to those, I will be sadly disappointed. It is in the Lord that I am someone. I am a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So, Jeremiah says, Let not the rich man boast in his riches, or the strong man in his strength, or the wise man in his wisdom, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows me, that he knows me, says the Lord. You see, and this is what we are seeing here with the failure of all the gods of the world and the, what will also fail you. They will fail you. The stars and the moon and the land and the sea will fail you. People will fail you. God will make it so if, if that's where your heart is. But in the midst of all of that, God has shown his patience and mercy. Even with the seven trumpets blowing in Jericho, God said, remember the prostitute. Go and get her and her family and bring her and she will leave. And this is what God is doing today. Even with upheaval, even with the failure, the people of God, movie stars and sports stars, they make millions, hundreds of millions. They buy this corporation, that corporation. And their gods of things that they, they drop dives, drug overdose, or they, they their lives just waste away to nothing because they've invested everything into this world. And the gods of this world fail them. And in the midst of all that, God waits to be merciful to you this morning if you're not a believer. To say to you, look, in the midst of the trumpets, there was the prostitute. Believe in the midst of this world's affairs, there is you and God's goodness and God's patience week after week in this church pleading with you to believe, irregardless of the consequences. God has already said, He's shown you here how good God is to show us, not to keep it from us, right? Not to hide it from us. He says, This is what's coming. Heaven is silent before such a thing, yet we noisy men. Preoccupied, got our heads in the sands, hoping for the best, irregardless of what we do with Jesus. God is saying, Hello. Remember the people that perished 
Remember the people who were saved. Remember Pharaoh, to whom Moses pleaded that he would believe on the, on the living God. He would turn from his hardness. Remember Nebuchadnezzar, whom Daniel pleaded with, that you, he might worship the, the true and living God. He, he wouldn't listen until judgment. And so we, friends, must hear these words this morning as we hear these trumpets being sounded, as the seals are being let go, and as we see later, the bowls have to be emptied. God is, might speak to us in our heart and say, what about you today? Where, where do you fall in all of this? May you, through this amazing unfolding of world history, see yourself in the midst of it. And again, cause your heart and mind to look to the land of God who takes away the sin of the world, in whose hand is your life and your destiny. He holds the keys. And if you come to him today, he will in no wise cast you out. No wise cast you out. Forsake the gods of this world. Forsake the gods of this world that God has already shown. Generation after generation, they will fail you. But he will never fail you. Let's pray.